0: We're rationalizing human beings. So if you want to get people to move, you activate the limbic system. Well, how do you do that? You start with the soul and end with the cell. You start with the emotional, you start with the evocative, you start with the things that resonate in people's uh, affects that make them feel a thing. And then you close with the rational.
1: This is Brand Story, a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leaders, marketers, and brand storytellers about their professional journey and the impact they're making on the world around them. Welcome to the Brand Story podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Dr. Marcus Collins. Marcus is currently the head of strategy at Wyden Kennedy, New York, and the clinical marketing professor at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan. He is also the author of the best-selling book, For the Culture, which examines the influence of culture on human behavior and how everyone from marketers, leaders, and activists can leverage culture to get people to take action. Hi, Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I want to start out just a little by talking about your very unique journey. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've met someone or heard of someone with a background like yours. And reading your book, I realized that I don't think anyone else could have
0: written this book but you. Well, that's a blessing. Thank you. Uh, It's been a long and windy road, man, I tell you.
1: Yeah, sure has. So you started out studying engineering and then somehow from that got into digital music and did digital strategy
0: for Beyonce. Can you just kind of unpack that for me a little bit? Sure. You know... I grew up in Detroit, born and raised. Now, I always start there because I feel like that's, I'm a product of the city. And growing up in Detroit, you know, if you did well in math and science, you're going to be an engineer, like full stop. That was the expectation. So I studied engineering. And I thought that polymers were pretty cool, uh, that the plastics and carbon chains were, were, were interesting. So I decided to be a materials engineer. So I went to the University of Michigan, uh, which I would say I was, I was interpolated to go to. Is imprinted on me at a very early age. So, I went to University of Michigan, studied materials engineering, and you know, the first year I struggled. Honestly, um, I remember going home after my freshman year saying, "Mom and Dad, I don't know if I want to be an engineer." And my parents say, "Well, wait till you get to your major, like that, you'll love it." My mother's an academic, so yeah, I trust her. Okay, okay, you know, she said, wait till you major, you'll love it. Okay, Mom, I'll do that. So I go back my second year, and uh, Steve, I didn't love it. <laughs> weren't built for it, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know it, what it was. It's like I thought it was interesting. I just wasn't that interested. I thought it was like it was it was fascinating stuff, but I just didn't, couldn't see myself doing it for the rest of my life, at least uh, in the context in which I thought you know materials engineers uh, practice. So I took some music theory courses to offset my not so uh, my not so great GPA and I fell in love with major sevenths. Wow,
1: how about that?
0: I used to play piano in church and I sang yeah. in choirs and I loved boys to men. So like I, I you know, I was really into music, but it was always a hobby. It was always sort of an extracurricular activity and took these music theory courses. And I said, oh my goodness, this, this is what I wanna do. And it was my first time that I can remember as an adult being excited about learning. And I was like, this is the thing for me. Um, and I went home after my sophomore year. Said, "Mom and Dad, I know what I want to do for a living." They go out with it. They're, they're excited. And I go, "I want to be a songwriter." They go, "Oh no, you don't. <laughs> that is not true. Not well received. No, not even close." Um, and uh, it wasn't a very it wasn't a very productive conversation. I tell you, um, I lost that battle, and I ended up finished my my degree. But I spent all my time in the in the recording studio they had here on campus, like really high, high end, high tech studio. Uh, that I learned uh sound engineering, signal processing. I you know continue with composition and uh theory. And I was just writing, producing songs, you know, while I was finishing my engineering degree. So when I graduated, I gave my degree to my parents, said this is for you. I'm off to the music industry. And I went out uh To write love songs, yeah, because I I thought I wanted to be (laughs) babyface. Right, I really wanted to be babyface. Yeah, well,
1: you know, it's a good ambition.
0: I get it. Yeah, you know, one of the best songwriters ever. Yeah, why not?
1: Yeah, you gotta, you gotta shoot for the fences.
0: You you aim for the stars. Yeah, right. Absolutely. You aim for the moon, and maybe you get the stars. Yeah, why Um, not? And I had like some some moderate success. I guess if you get paid for what you do in the music industry at any sort of level, then that you count that as a win. So I, I, I'd i count that as a win, but it wasn't sustainable. So I ended up going back to school to get my MBA to study this disruption that was happening in, in the industry that we know is digital. Yeah. You were on the forefront of that, weren't you? Yeah. I mean, I think I think I was just like right in the sweet spot, I'd say, because the industry had no clue what to do about? It. In fact, if you remember, the industry's response to digital was to police it. I mean, they were suing people for downloading songs off Napster, which sounds ridiculous.
1: I know. I remember that time.
0: Yeah, but, so that's where we were. Um, so I went to go study that. So I figured I would take this new, this new affinity that I had for business because I know anything about business beforehand, uh, my love for music, and my curiosity about digital. Sort of put those things together, and. When I was at school, I ended up uh, getting a job at Apple doing partner marketing at iTunes, which was like a dream come true.
1: That's a good opportunity right there. That's
0: right. I mean, it's Apple, so there's that. But also, you know, this is right around, This is right after the iPhone was released. Apple was basically leading, shaping what the music industry would later become with iTunes and iPod. Uh, it was just the perfect place. I mean, that was the dream job. That's what I. That's what I wanted. So I was very grateful to have that. Um, and while I was there, um, I ended up, well, actually right after that, I ended up bumping into, uh, Matthew Knowles, who has a daughter named Beyonce.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Perhaps you've heard of her. Yeah. she sings a few songs and he goes, wait a minute. You mean to tell me you're an engineer, started a music company, you have an MBA, you worked at iTunes and you're black dude. You don't exist.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You are a bit of a unicorn, my friend.
0: As we see, you don't exist. And I go, I exist, man. I'm real. According to the lore, he thought that I was, uh, that I was, uh, that I had lied on my resume. He didn't think it was real. Uh, so we met a few times, and he says, You should run digital strategy for this organization, which meant I would run digital strategy for Beyonce. And I go, Oh, yeah. Count me in for that.
1: Man, that's pretty close to being babyface. I mean, it's not, <laughs> yeah. it's babyface adjacent, sure. Okay. But, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah,
1: that might be fair. the coolest job I've I've ha- heard of. Yeah, that's I'm just gonna say it's the coolest job I've heard of.
0: It was it was really cool. It was it was I was very very grateful because you know I for all intents and purposes he took a he took a chance on me. Yeah, right. Like he he saw some potential, thankfully, um, and decided to invest in that potential. And I'm so unbelievably grateful uh, for Matthew for that, uh, and have been able to to lay a brick on the edifice that is uh, Beyonce's queendom. But while I was there, uh, this is like, I am I am Sasha Fierce day. So you got like Single Ladies, Halo. It's an amazing time to be in Beyonce business. Yeah, it's, the, it's when she's exploding. That's right. She's going from being an artist to being queen beat. And it's just phenomenal. Mm. But I had the sense that one, um, my colleagues who were working outside the music industry that they had a better understanding of the space than I did of this digital and social space. And I just felt like the music industry was so far behind every everyone else. So I was concerned about that cuz I didn't, I didn't know if I were growing, if I was growing. The second thing is that I didn't know how good I was. Like everything I was doing was successful with Beyonce because it was Beyonce. Right, good point. And the whole time I had to ask myself like is any of this because of me? Like I have no clue if I'm good or not. You know, I'm just sort of riding the waves of this juggernaut of of an artist and and benefiting from that. But that that, that really ate at me. That I didn't know if I was good or not, and that was hard to look in the mirror.
1: Good for you for asking yourself that question. So many people wouldn't. Yeah, right,
0: we just kind of go along with it, and 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 there's great benefit in that too. But just for me and my disposition, I just had to know. You know, if I were mediocre. I would just want to know that. Like, I just, I would just want to know. And I'd been, I was willing to bet on myself to to find out. You
1: you really segued from that into the advertising world. So you really right. did dive in trying to understand not only this whole digital space, but how to influence people for real in it. So you, I think you fully embraced what you were doubting. I sure did. You know, from your early success, didn't you?
0: There's one thing about me that I would say that maybe it's a the gift and the curse. I don't know, but... When I decide to do a thing, I get very myopically focused on it, and I'm sure it drives my parents crazy. I know it drives my wife crazy. But like <laughs> I just, I just focused tunnel vision. Um, and I felt like advertising was the best place to be because they were very prolific with regards to putting things in the world. And that's when I was really, uh, I was really motivated by putting things in the world, whether I was a songwriter or a, a marketer. So that, that wasn't compelling for me. And then, you know, they were leading the space when it came to the digital and social world. They were doing the most innovative ideas. And I go, okay, I want to be there. And ironically, they were doing a better job of launching new artists, breaking new artists than record labels were. And I felt like that was just the right thing. And if I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, the show Mad Men was yeah. pretty popular at the time. Right. And I was like, it's contagious. God Draper an interesting guy. I mean, right. set aside the womanizing and yeah, the right. alcoholism and the excessive smoking. Yeah. I could be that guy. Yeah. There's
1: something about the advertising and marketing world too, where if you're fascinated by human beings and by That's behavior, right. which you certainly are having read your yeah. book,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: the, the if, you, if you're immersed in culture and um, immersed in music – that's and right. these things that are so emotional to people, yeah, then being in advertising or being in marketing, you're sort of on the cutting edge all the time That's right. of trying to use this material. So how did you segue from that? Because you're, but by the way, the combination of your skills is so fascinating to me. Then you rejoin academia and then so, what? Because this so is crazy.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm in the world of advertising and I'm at a, a pure play social media agency learning the tools, learning the technology, which was amazing. It was like boot camp for social, which was awesome. And while I was there, I met a gentleman named Steve Stout, who was a record label executive. Uh, used to manage like Kid and Play and Nas and Mary J. Blodge, uh, the trackmasters. Like he was just very, very, very influential uh in the music industry. And he went to go start a record label with his friend Jay-Z and uh, his mentor, Jimmy Iveen uh, and his agency was all about helping brands thrive in contemporary culture. And I go, that's the thing, that guy. I want to be wherever he is. That's where I want to be. And he asked me to come over to build his social practice. I go, bet. I'm there. And I do that. And I think that was probably the biggest inflection point I had in my career, going there, because the focus on culture was very clear. But it also was quite revealing because I had no clue what culture was. I use that in language. I say it all the time. When I mean, you get our ideas out in the culture, what's happening in culture? Our, de- our ideas need to be informed by culture. It's culture, 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 culture. We all use the word, but didn't have a very good understanding of what it was, and that was a problem. Like I, I felt sort of like a fraud that I'm talking about these things in these abstract nature, and I'm talking about how important it is, how influential it is. But if you asked me and four other people to define culture, you get 50 different answers. and That's a problem. Yeah. And man,
1: I think you're the only person maybe brave enough or with the most unique experience to try to explain it. And I think you've done it very successfully in your book. And you have a quote that is one of my favorite things about culture. You say, trying to explain culture is like trying to explain water to a fish. That's right. It's hard. It's so hard. I love that.
0: Oh, thank you. It mean, it's it's omnipresent. It's in everything that we do. It's so it's so esoteric and abstract, yet its manifestations feel so tangible and so real that it's a really difficult thing. And you know, one of um the 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 godfathers of cultural studies, Gemma by the name of Raymond Williams, you know, he argued that culture is one of the the top three hardest words to define. I mean, he wrote an entire book. Just defining culture uh, because of just how hard it is, and so you know, I I didn't give myself, I didn't beat myself up too much about it by not having the nomenclature once I started digging into the literature. But I certainly was focused and motivated to get to some language that was both digestible and actionable, and that's and that's sort of what got me into academia, understanding human behavior. And the more I understood human behavior, the better the work got.
1: Right. Of course. And the
0: better the work got, the more curious I came about human behavior. And that's been my career for arguably the last decade is having one foot in academia, one foot in practice. Because as I rigorously interrogate what we know about people, I use that to inform what we put in the world.
1: That is a magic combination, you know, being able to have a foot in both those worlds so that you can do research and you can – have the time to study and think, and then also apply it and be a practitioner at the same time. I feel very fortunate. Yeah. You've landed in a rarefied space, my friend. That's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> I feel very fortunate because I get to learn from people who are just so, so much smarter than I am. And I get to be a part of the discourse and, and hear them debate and interrogate these ideas with, like, with great precision. And I go, oh, man, I never thought about that. And they say, well, they'll, they'll, they'll quote scholars. And I go, I need to go read their stuff. And as I read their stuff, uh, I'll go into the practicing world and I would hear us use these, you know, these abstractions. And I go, well, what are we saying here? Like, let's get better language. And then I would learn from my peers on the practicing side because they're just really good tacticians. You know, they're just really good at the, the execution of things. And I, so I'm learning how to execute and learning how to concept. And, I, and if, if anything novel that I bring to the table, it's just connecting the dots between the two. Which is so important and so
1: useful because sometimes academia, I mean, the usefulness is there's no question, but it's hard to make it practical. Yeah. You know, you, you got thinking and then you're a practitioner. You're a practitioner. You're in a world that's moving very fast, that has a lot of demands, financial demands, success demands metrics, all these things. So making it practical, making theory practical is unique to the situation. It's unique to the personalities. It's unique to the brand. It's unique. So yeah, I think that's, you're very uniquely suited to bring those two things together. I think that's so cool. So let's talk about your book a little bit. It's behind you. I love your background, by the way. (laughs) I I love when I talk to a marketer because that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing behind you right there. Thank you so much. I love it, man. And so your book, For the Culture, and I, I think the subtitle for your book, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and What We Want to Be, usually the you, know, you get the shorthand. Everyone says, For the Culture, when they're talking about the book. Man, that is an accurate statement. Your subtitle for this book is so accurate, and it's, it's really how you're making it useful for everyone. And like we talked about, I think marketers throw this word culture around like crazy. That's right. And it's really hard to unpack it. Do you want to take a shot? I know you have many different expectations. Can you teach us a little bit about what culture is and how we apply it?
0: So my theoretical repertoire sits mostly in sociology. So I have a bias towards a sociological uh, view of the world. So I think about culture through a Durkheimian lens. So, it's Emil Durkheim, one of the founding fathers of sociology, he talks about culture as a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and what people like us do. Right, they're a system of conventions and expectations, and those things uh, are manifest as the beliefs, the our collective understanding of truth of what is true, uh, the beliefs and ideologies, the stories we tell ourselves and then there's a shared way of life the artifacts behaviors and language that's normative for people like us and then the way we express ourselves through cultural production this is music art literature uh film and brands and branded products and the alchemy of those systems or system of systems uh represent our culture and if you take it one step further uh raymond williams who i mentioned earlier you know, he would talk about culture as a realized signifying system, or say it differently, culture is a realized meaning-making system. That is, it's through these conventions and expectations that we translate the world and give it meaning. So if I were to sort of Voltron a definition, it would be culture is a realized meaning-making system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and govern what people like us do.
1: Wow, man. That is just, that's so powerful. It seems like a simple sen- sentence, but it's so powerful. Took I mean, me a lot of years to get there. Man, I bet. Because that <laughs> one, I've read, I've read your book and I keep rereading sections of it because it's like, culture is like an onion. I mm-hmm. mean, you have culture inside a company you work where you have certain that's phrases right. and certain behaviors right. and certain things you say to each other. If you come into a company, you don't know those buzzwords and the cool things people say that takes you a while to be part of the culture. That's right. And that's like, micro- like an outsider. Yeah, for an outsider. That's like a microcosm. Then that's right. You move from population to population, subculture to subculture, interest to interest, you know, people that are into NASCAR or culture and people that are mm-hmm. into hip hop or culture. That's right. Yeah. And inside that is, you know, 10 layers of onion inside that.
0: Yeah. You know? And, and and what I think is so powerful about having language to describe these things is that when you are in an organization and you just don't feel like you fit in. And you go, I don't know. I just don't, I just don't feel like I belong here yet. I know people and I have friends. If I don't feel like I fit in, like that's a pretty isolating experience. And like, and you don't feel like you have very much agency because you can't pinpoint what the thing is. But if we take um a a construct to define unpack culture, we can say, okay, I know what's missing. Like I don't understand the language. Or the artifacts like i don't, i don't i don't i don't understand the artifacts or i don't know like the the rituals the social norms the unwritten rules so you could say all right i need to figure this thing out or you may deduce that you just don't share the same beliefs and then you go maybe i shouldn't work here at all so the idea of having an understanding of culture just provides agency I and mean, that's the most powerful thing to have agency to make decisions about how you wanna navigate the world. And when I think about my career as we started, you know, I, I, I studied engineering because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. Those are the expectations of people like me. And my parents, they were doing what they thought they were supposed to do to be good parents, to push me into a career that's gonna have a higher probability of success, right? So we all, my parents and myself, were being influenced By culture. And since we didn't have the language to describe what was happening, they were probably like, our son's an idiot. And I was saying, you know, my my parents are bugging. My parents just don't get me. And we were out of sync because we didn't understand each other and we didn't have the language to describe what each of us were experiencing.
1: Yeah. And I love how you describe culture, you know, because culture is so multifaceted and we may be part of a few different cultures while we're part of a larger culture. And there's reference points for our culture as Americans versus a Japanese or whatever. But I love, you have a phrase and I might butcher it so you can say it better. But, you know, people like me do things like this. That's right. And I think that's so fascinating because as a marketer or as someone who's trying to move people in any way, or you're trying to persuade people, get them to think something, get them to believe something, buy something, then you really need to understand what they care about, what language they speak.
0: That's right. That's right. Which requires us understanding who they really are, not the labels that we affix to them, right? Like this isn't about a collection of labels. It's about a collection of people who abide by a meaning-making system that governs what they do, whether they're aware of it or not, you know, because of what they consider to be normal or expected of people like them, they're going to behave a certain way. But if you don't know who they are, then you won't understand the expectations.
1: Absolutely. hundred percent, man. And I think, you know, one of the things in our company is that we pride ourselves on is just endless curiosity That's right. about people, how they behave, you know, different kinds of art and culture and anything. And I think to be successful as a communicator, to be successful in marketing or advertising, you almost have to be a sampler of different cultures and passionate about what's not even if it's not your culture you have to be somewhat enamored and fascinated by it because even the
0: customs of like
1: cosplayers is cool to me yeah you know
0: i mean that's the one thing that i feel like i don't know how to teach is curiosity and that's what i get most excited about when it comes to teaching students and being in an organization it's curious people like i'll hire a curious person before someone who is extremely skilled but has no curiosity, because the person's curious, they're going to they're going to go find out, they're going to learn the skill to get better. They're going to do, they're going to keep going, and and their growth trajectory is always going to have a, a, a higher slope than those who are just either naturally great or are well practiced, because they're only going to go as far as their skill set will take them, and hopefully, you know, by osmosis, they may get better. But the people who are curious, they're gonna they're gonna push themselves forward. Now that's that's a bias I have, and I do have that bias towards how I hire um, more more so th- than not. And it's also the bias I have in the classroom. Those are the students that I gravitate towards, the ones who are who come after class and go, I heard what you said, but it makes me wonder this. Does that change that? And I go, Oh, let's talk. Yeah. Like let's talk. And and I feel, I feel like it's th- because that kind of potential you could pour into. And this gets me really excited. Curiosity.
1: Me too, man. I think that you know curiosity can like combine with empathy, the ability to execute and feel real empathy for others and not judge others. You know, I think those two things are are the sweet spot of anyone in our industry.
0: That's right. I, I think it was. I could not agree with you more. Could not agree with you more. But it also mis- makes us better human yeah. beings too. Hell yeah. Like fancy that. <laughs> it's like not only are we better practitioners, they'll become better humans when we say, oh, like the way I see the world is just the way I see the world, right? And that doesn't mean that you abide by the same meaning-making system. So then I go, I wonder how Steve sees the world. Let me go find out about him. Uh, and it's just, goodness gracious, it just makes for just a far more, I will not even call it tolerant, just a far more civil place to be, whether it's society, society, organization uh, or the way that we interact with with consumers as brands.
1: Yeah. And you embrace, you know, other people's points of view much easier. You hear people instead of not hear them. I had Patricia Corsi on the podcast and she's the global CMO for Bear. Oh, yeah. And her advice to anybody young that's a marketer was go travel, meet other people. If you can't do it in person, do it virtually, you know, have other experiences. And, you know, I just thought, you know, it's a little bit of a different way to say what we were just talking about is you have to get a sense for what other people are going through and their struggles and what they care about, what language they're speaking emotionally.
0: Yeah. And I think when you do that, you learn about yourself. Oh, hell yeah. When I was in my songwriting days, I went on tour with um, the most interesting thing I felt like I've ever done. There was a, they're based here in the States. They were an Islamic boy band. Oh, cool. And one of the guys I went to school here in Michigan uh, with and they were working on an album. It was their third album, in fact. And he goes, yeah, you know, we're kind of a big deal overseas and working on our third album. I'm like, sure, whatever, you know. And he's like, you know, can you help us write some some songs? And I'm like, yeah, sure, great. You know, I, I'm a songwriter. This is what I do. So we wrote some. I wrote some stuff with them, did some recordings, and they launched the album. And they said, hey, we're going on tour. You want to come with us? And I was like... Where, where are you going? It's like, oh, we wouldn't be in the UK. And I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll go to London and Birmingham. Great. It'd be awesome. And I go there and I spend time with them. First of all, they're like the in in-sync of, of Islamic boy bands. Like they were like girls chasing them to the bus, the wildest thing I've ever seen. But what was interesting is that as I spent time with them and watched them practice their faith, I felt like I became a better Christian. Wow, that's really cool. Be- because I would hear them say things like, um, you know, uh, you know, we'll meet them at five o'clock, inshallah, or like you know, let, hopefully we'll make it to the venue in time, inshallah. And I was like, why do you keep saying inshallah? What is what is that? And I, you know, I got the I was brave enough, curious enough to ask, like, what does that mean? It says, oh, it means God willing. And I go, oh my goodness, you know, as, as Christians, that's what we're supposed to say. We're supposed to say, you know, hey, we don't control things. God willing, these things will happen. And I was like, oh wow. And I think that that's what makes for a good market researcher as one uh, as one scholar puts it, you know, you find the familiar and the strange.
1: yeah, wow, I love that phrase
0: it's just it's just it's it's the coolest thing, but traveling internationally, it forces you to be empathetic because you don't have the safety of your biases to 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 lean on. So you're coming to a new environment you go all this stuff is new. so I just got to sort of observe it and as you observe it, you go, it goes from those people crazy to, that's interesting. To let me taste it, <laughs> you know. And it, it's a great place.
1: I think travel like that, international, and even I love going to big cities. And the crazier the city, the better for me. Um, I, I think it. What it does is, it forces you to meet yourself in your reaction. Yes. You yes. know, your reaction yes. to what's happening. You know, I sort of developed this phrase that I use now that when I travel. And, you know, you'll notice yourself saying, I like this or don't like it. And I just say to myself, well, that's happening. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, so that it slows me down. And I'm like, that's happening right now. I'm seeing this happen. And (laughs) it kind of just changes my mind, uh, you know, my point of view a teeny bit to where I'm like, yeah, that's happening. I don't, shouldn't have value judgment on this right now, unless it's something bad or dangerous or whatever. But, you know, people have all these different behaviors and they're part of these subcultures and they love them and they're passionate about them. And I just think it's the coolest thing.
0: Yeah. And you know, the the other side to that is when I'm teaching, I have international students in my class. Yeah, right. And they do a good job of finding the strange and the familiar, where they'll go, Why do you all do that? And I go, What do you mean? We just do it. And they go, That's not odd. And I go, I'm like, you know, I never really thought about that. That is kind of odd that we do that. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not that rational, not that logical, but we do it without thinking and it's hard for us to see ourselves, right? Like you say, like to find yourself is hard for us to do that, but it requires some, uh, some, some things being unfamiliar for us to take inventory that way.
1: Yeah, and travel is like a mirror that way.
0: But I think that, you know, what you're getting at is that we need a little bit more elasticity. Yeah to be able to to experience new things. And in that experiencing of new things, uh, we learn a little bit more about the world and about ourselves.
1: We really do. I think elast- elasticity is a great way to put it. I come from a theater and an improv background and also a marketing business background. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so for me, like, yes and is how I live. And wanting to you know see the possibility is just how I operate. You
0: know, I think it's so, so fascinating about that. Um, I've, I've I've become fast friends with Kelly Leonard, who executive director of Second City and wrote the book Yes, and yep, <laughs> that's so cool. So we're in Chicago together, having dinner with he, with he and his wife and my wife, and he's like, "Hey, have you ever been to Second City before?" I was like, "You know what, Kelly? I've never been to an improv show at all." I was like, "I love stand-up comedy, never been to an improv show." He's like, "Oh, you're going tonight," and I went. And it was the most fascinating thing because as i'm observing it and i'm observing this like i could tell that it's they're 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 creating new things on the spot i almost felt i almost felt the tension for them unbelievable i've never experienced that before i feel like in my listening to music i'm like all right you know win me over <laughs> like you know wow me you know and even though i know the audience plays a participatory role in music performance, but it's usually like, it's a volley. I am responding with my energy and then you respond to me. But when it comes to improv, I just felt like there's so many nodes in that network that makes it work. That I felt like I was on stage just as vulnerable and naked as they were. It's the most fascinating thing. So when you say you come from an improv background, I can only imagine how you see the world as a marketing practitioner because of the complexity and the amount of dynamism associated with that art form. It's pretty cool.
1: Absolutely, and it's influenced everything I've done. Like I spent 20 years actively doing performing improv and teaching improv, and I just love it. And I think it it really just gets you in touch with how emotional human beings are. Because that thing that you talk about that audiences go through with improv shows is different than what they go through in any kind of presentational theater, and I've directed a ton of plays. Because they know it's happening right that second. So they are – their energy is part of it. So their response changes the action and their the action changes their response. And it becomes this strange speed emotional communication between the audience and the performers. It's just nuts, man. It's a nutty space to be in. And I think that, you know, while I was reading your book, I was reflecting on that a lot because – You know, improv and performers and people that do that is kind of a culture. It's a subculture. People who love to go see it have a little bit of an affinity for it and it becomes kind of a bit of a culture. Theater people are certainly a culture. And it made me start thinking about emotional decision making. And there's something you said in your book that it's a phrase, start with the soul and end with the cell. Yeah. Dude, can you unpack that a little bit? Because there's a few things you say in your book that I was just like reading it and I like out loud, I'd be like, Damn.
0: <laughs> so, that was one I, of them. So that, that, that line comes from a guy named C.C. Chapman. He's a professor at Babson College, um, and and the idea is that what gets people to move is not the rational, it's the emotional, Right? Look at the biology of decision-making the limbic system, uh, that's where the amygdala, the hippocampus uh, is, is, is uh, located. And they are the stores of memories. There's the stories, they're stores of these memory structures that we have that are quickly evoked when uh, they are catalyzed. Yeah. And what we know about decision-making is that the, our feelings are associated with the same part of the brain as our behavior. And we know that intuitively because we call that intuition. I just felt it in my gut. I just felt it. It didn't feel right, so I didn't do it. It felt like this was the move, so I jumped. And it's hard for us to put emotions into words because emotions are not associated. Emotions are associated with the limbic system, but words are associated with the neocortex. So articulation and linear thinking, logic, associated with the neocortex. So you've got... As I was say in the book, you got like a Kirk brain and a Spock brain. Your Kirk brain is like, Marcus, let's just do this. And your Spock brain is like, whoa, 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 let's, let's look at the data first. And we love to think of ourselves as Spocks. We want to be data-driven decision makers, but we ain't no Spock. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> no. I mean, there's a spectrum for sure, but we are sure. far more Kirk than we are Spock, even the best of us. Um, we're rationalizing human beings. So if you want to get people to move, you activate the limbic system. Well, how do you do that? You start with the soul and then with the cell. You start with the emotional. You start with the evocative. You start with the things that resonate in people's uh, affects, that make them feel a thing. And then you close with the rational so that they can justify these emotions that they have. They can justify the behaviors that they're going to take on uh, because what they feel, they have this linear logic uh, to to sort of uh, frame why they're doing a thing,
1: man? That's so powerful. You know what? My favorite phrase that you know I've said to clients a million times and people I work with is that everyone does, makes decisions emotionally and then defends them logically. That's right, or rationally. And that's I've right. had people argue that with me, and I'm like, okay, tell me a decision that you made rationally. That's right. Did you buy a car rationally? Oh yeah, I researched it. Sure,
0: right. you did. <laughs> <laughs> you did after you decided you loved it. That's right. You know what I often refer to in those cases? I go, okay, let, let's look at this through theory, right? And and I will bring up um, Clay Christensen's uh, jobs to be done theory. Love that. Which is well appreciated, well respected. I go, great. People who don't buy brands and brand new products, they hire solutions to get jobs done. They go, yes. And I bought this product because it's the best at getting the job done. Okay. So let's break down the jobs to be done. There's a functional job, an emotional job, and a social job, right? Right. So the functional job is just one third. So two thirds of getting the job done has nothing to do with the performance of the product. Everything you do with what you feel and what other people think about you. Those are emotions, my friends. They sure are. <laughs> like, so yes, the product has to be parity. Yes, the product can't be trash for sure. But 66% of what's driving this thing has everything to do with what's inside of our hearts and our minds, which is all in our minds. And the better we understand that, you know, the faster we'll stop lying to ourselves.
1: Very <laughs> near, man.
0: And also, if there's ever
1: an argument between those three factors in making a decision, yeah. we all know who wins.
0: Absolutely, I just wanna. <laughs> I just gotta have it. Yeah, I just
1: gotta have it.
0: I know it doesn't make sense, but uh, I gotta. I yeah, just we, gotta we, we, do we know it. That. We know that. So your
1: journey into academia, I think, has really informed your career as a marketer. And do you think the book came out of? Just trying to connect the dots between the incredible amount of theory that you know and sociology you know and this very human world of marketing is what do you what made you
0: do this book right now? If I'm being very honest, I didn't think I would write a book, especially no time soon, yeah, and I think a part of me felt like I don't know if I had a book in me. Cause I, I mean, like I, I don't I'm, I, I'd be lying if I said I love writing. I love to have written but writing is painful, but I I love to have written a thing, but the writing part is hard. I mean, I I write, yeah, I I write 1200 words a week for Forbes every week. Right. And that's a painful undertaking, but I like what comes out on the other end. And I never, I didn't, I didn't think that I would write a book anytime soon, but someone had to see it in me, which is why I'm so grateful uh, for, for people who, who see potential and invest in it when other people don't see them themselves. And someone saw a talk I gave. He was a, a, a an agent, a literary agent. And he says, "I think you got a book in you." And I go, "You think so?" And he goes, "Totally." And he says, hey, look, look, let's just let's just do a proposal. You know, just do a proposal. And we'll see how it goes. No, no strings attached, right? If you don't like it, nice to meet you. At the very least, you've got some distillation of your thinking." And I go, "Okay, that's a good exercise. I've heard that quote before. If you want." If you want uh, understanding, right. Like, okay, I, I, sounds good. Um, and I, I kind of put on the back burner just a little bit. Uh, COVID happens. I have access capacity. Also, it became, my mortality became very clear <laughs> for me. Yeah, to all of us. And I thought about that book, um, that book uh, called Die Empty. And the argument was that you know, tomorrow isn't promised, right? So you, know, you, you need to go now. Right, like the most expensive real estate in the world is the graveyard, because that's where people didn't launch ideas and write books or write. Mo- and so I was like, "All right, I'm gonna do it now." So I decided to just kind of go after it, um, and, and wrote the proposal, we submitted, it and it got some traction, which was awesome. And then I had to write the book.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Now what? And that was difficult. It, 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 exa- man, at one point I was like, maybe they need to go take their money back because I don't think I could do this. But what it was, I mean, just to sort of like, you know, like put the bow on this conversation is that I had to find myself. You know, like I knew the theory, I knew the literature, I had, I knew the application, I had, you know, sort of the receipts as far as like work I put in the world, but I didn't have a, the clearest point of view that was my own, and I had to like find my my voice and and I wrote, I remember wrote the first chapter. Which isn't the actual chapter that's in the book now. When I wrote the first chapter, it was very clinical. Like I was just kind of like, these are the facts, these are the whatever. But once I really got my my arms around what I was writing, it became just very vulnerable. And I just sort of kind of exposed myself, like where I made mistakes and, you know, where I was ignorant and, you know, like my children and how I met my wife. And like I just, I just, I just tried to write a book that only I could write right looking in through the lens of being a a a, a church boy you know looking at it being in the lens of being a practitioner and an academic and a hip hop head and like all these things that make up who i am in hopes that i could put frames around a concept that has been well researched but put it in a way that someone would read it and go oh i get it or sit or, or may feel like i've always knew what it was but i never had the articulation to communicate it, and now they feel more empowered, like they have more agency to do something. And you know, and that, that, that makes it worth it.
1: Yeah, and I think the incredible thing about your book for everyone listening is that it is superhuman. It is like the most human way to learn. That's why I love your book. I feel like there's a ton of empathy for the reader. I feel like you take us on a very personal journey while you teach us. So it's not dry. It's not like this this academic, you know, drudge through culture and <laughs> examining it, you know, which I'm always afraid of if someone from academia is written a book, you know, to be quite frank, you know, I'll be like, oh God, it's just going to, you know, I'm going to die. I'll be asleep in a chair. I, yeah. You know, every single word in your book and every chapter, I was just fascinated and just loved oh, it. I felt okay. like I got to know you before we even talked. Thank you. That That means a lot. You nailed it. Seriously, beautiful book. So we will we will put a link to your book, obviously, on the landing page for this episode. And before I let you go, I have a couple like speed round questions for you. All right, let's do that it. That I think will just be fun. Um, these aren't about your book. These are just some questions I like to ask.
0: So what's a piece of advice that you've been given that really stuck with you? Um, it was by Steve Stout. And he says, if you have an idea that is logically sound and everyone else thinks you're crazy, you're probably on to something love it that's beautiful so what would you call this chapter of your life you're
1: you're there's a lot going on for you right now what would you name this chapter
0: oh yeah these are my Phil Jackson years and i think of it that way because you know we know Phil Jackson as a coach right he's one of the best coaches but Phil Jackson used to be a player like he won two championships he was a player right um, but his legacy, his impact is his coaching, his, his ability to identify talent, pour into them, and help them realize the best version of themselves. And I feel like that's where I am in my career now. At least that's, that's what I aspire to in my career now.
1: Man, it sure feels like it from someone witnessing it.
0: Mm, You're just
1: you. crushing it, man. It's so much fun mm-hmm. to watch. Final question. I'll let you go.
0: I know you have a lot to do today. If you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be? Oh, man. I think I would tell myself... Um, that it takes courage to be you. So be brave. It's a beautiful place to end,
1: man. Hey, thank you so much, Marcus. I had an
0: absolute blast. Thank you. so. I'm so very grateful. Truly very, very grateful.
1: Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story.